welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Today's episode is brought to you by my new podcast, Notes from the Field. And I mean uh, brought to you by in a metaphorical sort of way, since I'm not like funneling money from one of my pockets to the other. I mean, maybe I should try and find sponsors for the show or like set up a Patreon account or something, uh, which is what lots of hosts do with their podcast. But instead, uh, if you like the show, I just ask uh, that you know if you find yourself coming back to listen, there are a couple things, uh, simple things I hope, that you can do to help me out. So the first is subscribe to the show so you always know when new material is available. That's easy enough, and I'm hoping that this is also at least a semi-rewarding commitment for you. The second, and this is a slightly more taxing exercise, is to rate this show on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the main ways that podcasts can gain visibility beyond word of mouth, because the better those numbers are, the more likely you are to be featured as a recommended show. I'd also appreciate it a lot if you did that, uh, but I must admit, you won't be able to discern any direct benefit to yourself by doing so. And then the third thing is, like I said, if you wouldn't mind, please check out my new show. I'm hoping that this will fall into the category of the mutual benef- mutually beneficial. Um, and it, the show, tell you a little bit about it. It's about travel, about seeing the world, about attempting to make sense of things and people which you've never before encountered. It's about me playing out my not-so-secret fantasy of being an anthropologist. So if any of that sounds like the sort of stuff you might like, I hope you'll check it out. It's called Notes from the Field, and season one is out on all major podcast platforms. My guest today is Howard Gardner. Howard Gardner is the, big breath, John H. and Elizabeth A. Hobbs Research Professor of Cognition and Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is best known as the developer of the theory of multiple intelligences, the idea that being smart is more complex than just an IQ score. Uh, That theory was introduced by him in his 1983 book, Frames of Mind. My favorite book of his, however, is perhaps unsurprisingly, his history of the cognitive revolution. It's called The Mind's New Science, published only a couple of years after Frames. We talk about it a bit in the second half of the conversation, but essentially that book laid much of the foundation of what I initially took to be the cognitive science gospel. In many ways, my own intellectual development can be charted by incremental deviations from Howard's book, slowly realizing, oh, I don't quite agree with that. I actually think something slightly different. I still love that book. At any rate, his new book is a memoir of his career entitled A Synthesizing Mind, which conveniently also acts as the book's thesis statement. It is what Howard argues is the unifying theme of his career as a scholar and writer. There's a lot that I loved in this book uh, because there's a lot about not quite fitting into the traditional molds of academia. So here's one example. It's a quote uh, from relatively early on in the book. I believe that the kind of work in which I have been engaged, situated between journalism on the one hand and experimental laboratory science on the other, is a valid and particularly precious possibly particularly precarious form of knowledge. So this resonates with me as a way of thinking about what it is that I want to do and what I feel like I'm cut out to do. Uh, I've also heard a lot of other people talk about this sort of tension between journalism and science, for example, in my interview with sociologist Edward Lauman. The journalism portion is about capturing specific events in the world as they actually happened, and the science portion is about capturing general principles about the world in the broadest way possible. 
And I think that the most interesting stuff always has elements of both. So it was quite interesting to hear Howard articulate this as sort of part of his identity and also see how it played out in his work. Another thing that I loved was Howard's distinction between doing the ultimate synthesis, as he calls it, versus putting ideas together for the first time. I think it's a useful distinction for, you know, two different kinds of synthesizing minds. Howard puts himself in the latter category of being the first to sketch together the idea rather than having the definitive and comprehensive take. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is that there were there were lots of moments of kinship that I found in his book, uh, and we also touch on a lot of them in this conversation. His book is out now, so you can go find a copy at your local bookstore. Anyway, without further ado, here is Howard Gardner. So the first thing I like to start with, and, and you also started with this in your book, uh, is to hear a little bit about where you grew up. Well, that's where I grew up has become more interesting recently because um, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I'm 77 years old. And uh, the president-elect of the United States uh, has the same demographic characteristics. Um, I didn't know Joe Biden. Um, I don't know whether I would have gotten to know him because even though we lived not far from one another, he went to parochial schools. And um, I lived in a primarily... Uh, Jewish so-called hill section, and uh, he's Irish and um, lived uh, mostly in a Catholic uh, um, part of town. Um, but my parents were German-Jewish immigrants who arrived in the United States literally in the nick of time. They, the boat on which they came from Europe um, came here on Kristallnacht, November 9th, 1938, which was the night of the broken glass when um, Hitler's uh, troops um, showed no mercy to anybody Jewish, destroyed synagogues, businesses, killed people, including relatives of mine. And uh, so I grew up with a lot of uh, um, political chaos in the background. Um, also, um, as I discussed in the, in the memoir, um, my mother was pregnant with uh, me when my parents' only son died in a freak sleigh riding accident. And so you know, there was a lot of uh, storm and drung around uh, my, my birth. That said, I think I had an unremarkable childhood growing up in Scranton, um, even though it was technically a, a, a depressed area, meaning that it wasn't doing as well economically as it had been doing 40 years later. Um, this was a time of, of growth and surprising unity in the United States, especially compared to today. There's now been a whole spate of books about how the 50s and 60s, whatever their problems were, was a time when most people in the United States thought that things would get better. And I never dreamt about becoming president. I don't know whether Joe Biden did, but I never felt there were huge obstacles to my uh, growing up and to my doing what I wanted to do. Similarly, uh, I, I went to Harvard College in the early 60s, I had a lot of friends there. And turns out this weekend, we're getting together by Zoom um, just to, you know, to reflect on what happened in the, in the presidential election. But I can't remember any of us um, at that time worrying about what kind of a job we'd have, whether we'd make enough money, things like that. And I've just finished a tremendously large study of higher education in the United States. And to put it uh, briskly, uh, 
most kids in college are freaked out about whether they'll ever get a job and ever make a living. So it was a very, very different kind of time. And in that sense, Biden and I benefited not only from where we were born, but when we were born. So one of the most dramatic parts of the book has to do with the sledding accent that you were talking about. And one of the things you said, and definitely feel free to pass if this is too personal, but you actually wrote that years later, your parents told you that they felt that they would have killed themselves if uh, if you weren't, uh, like you said, if, if your mother wasn't pregnant with you, that sort of gave them a reason to keep going. That What was it like when they told you that? How did you react when you found that out? Um, I was kind of you know, surprised to hear it. And because I don't have flashbulb memories, I don't even remember exactly who told me and how old I was, though I know I wasn't young. But when I was young, there were two things that were not discussed in the household. One was the whole Holocaust. And that's not so surprising because even though it would amaze people nowadays, the Holocaust as an event and even as a term was not used in much of the world, including the United States, till the 1960s. It was like taboo. So they never talked about what happened to their family. And they also never discussed that I had a brother who had been killed. There was photographs of him and they would say that was a boy in the neighborhood, which of course was a lie, but it was an attempt very characteristic of the 50s of trying to protect kids from from things. Um, I don't think that my parents telling me this when I was much older was itself uh, uh, traumatic but there's no question, looking at this late in life and knowing something about psychoanalysis and about psychodynamics, there's no question that a lot was expected of me. Um, I was, was expected that I would achieve. And that wasn't true of my entire generation of young children of European immigrants. There's been a whole study of that done um, called the second wave of people who came from European backgrounds, but who grew up in the United States. And the achievement of that group is incredible. I mean, many, many more people in who's who and uh, in prestigious positions in the professions. Also, um, I think there are probably more casualties as well, but a lot was uh, a, a lot was put in our shoulders. And at least unconsciously, I, I felt that. I was lucky because I was a good student. Um, and so I was whisked through school. And also, um, and I'm sure this was true in many parts of the world, though I wasn't aware of it until decades later, if you have a so-called bright kid or a kid with promise living in a community, um, other people in the community try to help out. And so uh, my parents were not, hadn't gone to college, they weren't highly educated. But other people said, well, you should send your son to uh, Phillips Academy, which is a prestigious secondary school. I didn't go there and you should try to send him to Harvard um, and you should you know, make sure he has opportunities. Um, it'd be interesting to ask now, since uh, I am lucky enough to have been a white male, if I'd been you know, an Asian female or a black uh, woman or a man for that matter, whether the community would have pitched in uh, the way they did. But I know from my studies in China that if you're in a rural community 50 or 100 years ago, and there's one person who's a good student, the community will work together to to raise that person's um, chance in, in life lottery. 
we also know that Joe Biden left Scranton when he was 10 or 11, so younger than, than I was. Um, and it'd be interesting to know why he left and whether that was also in search of opportunities. Because when I was a kid, uh, uh, two funny things about Scranton, uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. One was that um, we used to joke the most valuable thing in Scranton was a one-way ticket outside of the city because it was a city with much better past and future. And I still think that's true today. The other thing which still brings chuckles to me is when we went to the movies in those days, everybody went to the movies. We didn't have movies on television. In fact, we didn't have television until I was eight or nine. But we went to the movies, we would see movies and there were jokes about Scranton. And I always assumed that this was just dubbed in in every city they had jokes about that city. But when I went to college in Boston, I discovered the movie still had jokes about Scranton. Uh, I don't know whether there's a, a, a similar city like that in, in, in England or Scotland or Ireland or Australia, but Scranton was kind of the butt of jokes. And maybe even until Joe Biden became famous, uh, remained that, uh, uh, I guess, every, every nation needs to have some place where we kind of make fun of. I'll make sure to do some comparative biography when I have Joe Biden on the podcast, all right? Um, so you mentioned this, uh, but you were an undergraduate at Harvard, particularly in the Department of Social Relations, uh, which was a very specific time and place. So can you say a little bit about what your experience was like as an undergraduate in Sockrell? Sure, and I know you're interested in this, so I may go on a bit and then you can just uh, trim it. Um, yeah, when when I went to college, um, although I'd gone to a decent secondary school, I certainly didn't know about many subjects. So uh, I'd liked history in high school, so I became a history major. And I'm still very much a historian. I love to do history. I think about things historically. But I had the, the bad fortune of having a tutor um, as a sophomore, and I didn't really like what we were doing in history. It didn't interest me. Basically, we're studying historiography, how historians write about history, and that just didn't interest me. I wanted to know more about, you know, the the, the, uh, the glorious revolution in England, the, the French Revolution, and not about how somebody goes about doing history. So um, I cast around for something else to study. As a few of my professors, and I've always been lucky, I've had an easy time talking to professors, said, why don't you look into social relations? Um, and um, I'd heard about that concentration in part because it was called a gut. The gut means it was people could get high grades in it. Um, but that, that itself didn't, didn't interest me. Um, but it was a combination of psychology, sociology, and anthropology. And as a freshman, I had begun to read the works of Eric Erickson, who was a, a psychoanalyst who coined the phrase psychohistory and who tried to look at history like the Protestant Reformation or um, the, um, the freedom of, of India through, psych through psychological lenses. And since I was an Erickson devotee, and eventually he became my, my tutor as a, as a junior and a senior in, 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 co in college, I said, well, I, I should go and find out more about Sockrell. And I hit my groove there because I was always interested in human beings. I was interested in human mind, human behavior, human organizations. That goes back to my childhood and what I learned about from my family. Um, and here was a chance to look at the, uh, the human condition, the human endeavor, uh, what's special about humans, through a number of fields, which at the time 
looked like they were becoming very scientific. Psychology, sociology, anthropology um, aspired to be a science like chemistry and physics and biology. Uh, that didn't rub me one way or the other, though I now think it was basically a, a phony promise. And I think one reason Sockrell doesn't exist anymore is because it didn't really fulfill the promise of being like, like physics or like, uh, like chemistry. Um, but it was a good roving land for me to um, read um, um, Freud, Erickson in psychology, to read Weber and Durkheim in sociology, to read uh, Levi-Strauss uh, in anthropology. I eventually wrote a book about him. Um, I'm wearing my uh, Levi-Strauss t-shirt today, so. <laughs> no relation, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, I actually first ran into Levi-Strauss, whom I got to know reasonably well, in England in 1950, 1966, after I graduated from college. He gave a, I was on a fellowship in, in London, and he gave the Huxley Lecture. So we, uh, I, I followed up that, that interest in anthropology. And a few more things about Sacrell. Um, one, you could take on fairly ambitious projects for your thesis. And I studied the first retirement community in America. In the 60s, they began to set up cities, villages, towns, where they brought together just old people. Young people couldn't be there. Now, I was 20 at the time, but I spent a summer of this, uh, doing sociology and anthropology in California at a place called Leisure Village. and then. I wrote a thesis with the title Gerontopia, um, which was a very clever title. I didn't make it up. Not, um, a teacher of mine, Chuck Tilly, did. But old people, and I'm now older than most of the people who are in Leisure Village, um, think about what, what the perfect um, community will be when they're old, and they try to set, set up a utopia. So I called it Gerontopia, a utopia for old people. Of course, the name was uh, whimsical. Uh, because one of the things I studied was that there was a swimming pool in Leisure Village, and uh, half the people wanted a swimming pool so their grandchildren could swim in it, uh, and the other half didn't want any children in it because they would pee in it. And uh, uh, living now in a, in, in a kind of retirement community myself, I see that the smallest thing can be a fault line and, and trigger uh, lots of uh, disputes and debates and so on. Um, and. I did a lot of interviewing, a lot of reflecting in, in writing that thesis. And in a sense, that's the kind of work I've always tried to do. I've tried to find a new phenomenon or a confusing phenomenon. And I talk to lots of people. I read lots of people. I try to put it together. And the word I now use, I try to synthesize. And, and the memoir, memoir, which I wrote, is called A Synthesizing Mind, because I think if I have anything that I'm particularly good at, it, it, it's, it's synthesizing. On the topic of Sacrell, just to, to finish the, uh, to conduct the funeral, it was started in the late 40s by a number of luminaries who really thought that uh, they could put this interdisciplinary field on the map. By the time I studied it as an undergraduate and then later as a graduate student, the luminaries were still there, but they were quite old. Um, they hadn't really developed a second generation. Uh, and then, what I learned, and it's a very important academic lesson, is disciplines are very powerful. And when Sacrell got started, they didn't get rid of anthropology. They didn't get rid of psychology. They just created an experimental psychology and a physical anthropology department. And as the 
um, the glamour of Sacral diminished in the 60s. Um, the, uh, the initial departments just took over again. And so Sacral disappeared in the early 70s, just as I disappeared from it. Um, and now we have uh, 40, 50 years later, the sociology department, a psychology department, an anthropology department, with the same divisions within those departments um, that uh, at the time uh, uh, had split the departments apart. Um, and because I know of, of your own interests, Cody, um, it probably wasn't an accident that uh, 10 years later, I decided to study another um, <clears throat> field which attempted to bring lots of fields together, namely cognitive science. Um, and rather as with Sockerell, I think the aspirations for cognitive science in the 80s were uh, not realized in the next 50 years. Yeah, okay, let's, uh, let's unpack some of that a little bit. So one thing that I'm interested in is how, so you, part of your undergraduate education was that it was this sort of um, interdisciplinary mecca where you studied sociology, anthropology, psychoanalysis, experimental psychology. Eventually you, you went towards experimental psychology, particularly developmental psychology in graduate school. What did having that background in this really diverse, you know, sort of social scientific education, how did that impact you going forward? That's a very good question because it combines the personal and the, and the intellectual. Um, I actually didn't study psychology as an undergraduate, though I studied psychoanalysis. But right after I finished college, I went to work with a very brilliant and charismatic psychologist named Jerome Bruner, Jerry Bruner. Um, and I went to work on developing a, a curriculum in the social studies, rather like Sockrell. It was called Social Studies. That's the name we give in the United States to a combination of history, geography, and um, you know, interest in economics and politics at the, um, the, the, the secondary and primary level. Um, and it was in working with Bruner, who was a developmental psychologist himself, I first learned about Piaget, who was the great developmental psychologist. Uh, I also met Piaget uh, in Europe in '66, the same time that I that I met uh, Levi Strauss. Um, and so I decided before going off to England in a fellowship that I wanted to do graduate studies in in developmental psychology. And developmental psychology combines psychology and history, because if you're studying development, you're really studying the history of human beings or of generations. And of course, you're stu studying psychology. So I became a developmental psychologist. And I think that's the right field or subfield for me. And I have always been comfortable in that role. But as your question implies, I also brought much broader interests. In other words, when I'm interested in kids, I wasn't just interested in kids as, as a psychologist would, but kids as members of community, kids because of their ethical interests, uh, kids of the artistic interests, and so on. And um, this did not work well for a doctoral student. Number one, almost all of my classmates, whom I liked personally enough, had come out of the hard sciences, and they really wanted to make developmental psychology into chemistry or physics or engineering, and they weren't much interested in these soft areas. And then, and this would be even more true in England than it was in the United States, if you became a, uh, a doctoral student, you really were supposed to go into the, um, the camp 
of one or the other of the professors. And um, I had a lot of trouble finding a professor who would be a good mentor for me. Um, I didn't want to have Bruner because he was my wife's mentor, and I thought that was, would not be appropriate. Um, and so until I found a person named Roger Brown, who was very much uh, a social relations type interested very broadly, I had a hard time finding a mentor. And um, the professors did not like me because I was sort of a, a blithe spirit moving one thing to the other. And um, one of them actually tried to get me to kick kicked out of the program, uh, which didn't make me very happy. And so I was a fish out of the water. And um, I, in the memoir, I describe how I was so unhappy during my second year as a graduate student that I thought I would just quit and go to law school, which is what you're doing in the United States if you don't know what to do as an academic, go to law school. Um, and I put down all the reasons why I should quit and all the reasons why I should stay. I, I, this is for extra credit. I remember when Darwin was trying to get married, he also said a piece of paper, all the reasons he should get married, all the reasons he shouldn't. I didn't know that Darwin did that at the time, and I certainly don't think of myself as Darwin, but it is kind of an academic way to deal with something, which is basically an emotional issue, not an academic issue. But once I did this, I said, you know, Howard, your problem is you're trying to satisfy your classmates and your professors, the hell with them. You should decide what you want to do, do it, um, you know, do enough so you can stay in the program, be transactional in it, but don't try to I, you know, go your own way. Don't try to please everybody. And uh, even though there were aspects of that in my personality going back to my childhood, it's been very important to me ever since because I'm not a rebel. I don't like political um, conflict. Um, I'm lucky enough to be in lots of entities which are prestigious, but I don't let what other people do uh, influence what I think or what I say unless unless it seems appropriate. Um, and uh, I think that's a very important message. I know many of the people who listen to this podcast are uh, you know, people who want to go on in a scholarly career. And of course, you know, you, you don't want to get expelled. You don't want to get kicked out of school and you don't want to have all your articles rejected. But you shouldn't let the signals from other people be dominating. And I'm lucky enough, both, I guess, because of when I lived, where I lived, and because of my family that uh, you know, I will speak up when I think injustice is done. And one of the nice things I talk about in the book is you know, my parents, as I mentioned, were German Jews. They spoke with a thick accent. Thick accent. Um, you know, they knew they were in a, their adopted country, and so they tried to be careful. But when I was in sixth grade, so I was 11 years old, I had a teacher who was really nasty soul, Miss Dyer. And uh, she was quite imperious, in part because her brother was a superintendent of school. So that made her, that's the head of this whole school system in Scranton. So that made her powerful. And um, yeah, I was a kid who you know, would speak up. And she said something. And I said, you know, that's not right. It's something else. So she came. And I can remember to this day, she took a paddle. And she hit me very hard on my, on my wrist. And even though corporal punishment was not as taboo in the 50s as it is today, you didn't publicly hit somebody like this. And I went home and told my mother, and my mother took my hand and she walked right down to the school, it was probably 15 minutes away, into the principal's office, W. Archibald Reese. She said what happened and she demanded an apology. And Mr. Reese, 
to his everlasting credit, called Miss Dyer into the principal's office and said, you better apologize to Howard for what you did. And, um, she, and she did. And, you know, the apology was nice. But what was important to me that my mother, you know, basically wouldn't put up with this crap. And, uh, and, and the principal was persuaded that the teacher had, had, had been wrong. And uh, my interest in ethical and moral issues, which is, which is what I spend all my time on now, uh, really dates back to how my whole family handled things like that. They set a very good role model. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and I and I just want to say, going back to what you were talking about a little bit before that, is that that was a very inspiring part of your book for me, uh, as someone you know in graduate studies right now, and not always feeling like uh, that the you know sort of straight and narrow of the program is the the thing that is the best fit for me. And so to see the way you described your experience there, I was like, okay. I'm doing approximately what I should be doing, but I know that there is this whole other sphere of, of, of ways that I want to get involved in it. Um, so it's like, okay, do the program, finish it out. That's important to do, um, but don't let that be defining how you're going to think of yourself as a, as a scholar or an academic or whatever. The way you described that, very inspiring for me. So I just wanted to say thank you for, for doing that. And I think lots of people who go read the book will will find a similar inspiration in it. Well, you know, um, I'm pretty far away from uh, doctoral advising now because I've retired. Uh, and teaching in a school of education is not the same as teaching in a, in a department of um, standard discipline. But you know, looking at um, professors and their students over the years, I'll give you a the taxonomy, which I just made up in the last 30 seconds. Uh, they're the ones who consider students a nuisance, and uh, they wish they weren't around, um, but you know, they, they, they do what they have to do. Um, I didn't run into that as a, as, a, um, as, a, as a doctoral student. But the contrast, which I think is, is, is more important, is the duplicator versus the nurturer. Um, a lot of professors really just want the students to be clones of themselves. And the more the students do that, the more they like the students. And that's great for getting a first job because you get a great recommendation, but it doesn't do anything for the rest of your career. I've always been looking for nurturers and try to be a nurturer myself to try to figure out, you know, what's the student like? What's his or her potential? What is probably something they should be discouraged from doing? Um, and uh, how to bring out what's the best in the student. And um, I mentioned Roger Brown, who was my advisor and turned out to be my wife Ellen's advisor as well. This, I, I, I was divorced and remarried, uh, Bruner having been the advisor for my first wife, Judy, who I loved, um, and uh, Roger having been the advisor for, uh, for Ellen. But you, know, you should try as much as possible to find the nurturers, obviously avoid the nuisancers. Um, and if you have a duplicator, you know, shake your head and <laughs> sort of don't. Don't uh, don't defy openly, but remember, at the end, uh, it's your life; it's not his. Um, one of the most dramatic things in the book, which I'm sure you took note of, was my um, contact during my first year in, in graduate school with Stanley Milgram. Uh, uh, the background is that as an undergraduate, um, I really felt like a kid in a candy store. I loved being able to take different courses. Lots of people were nurturing. Nobody was trying to make them into duplicate because that's not how 
colleges are thought of. It's mostly like Oxford and Cambridge was maybe, I don't know how it is today. Um, but then when I went to doctoral student, I knew that was more serious. And because I was officially in social psychology, developmental psychology didn't have its own um, sh shingle, um, I took the pro-seminar with Stanley Milgram. Now, Stanley Milgram is arguably the most famous social psychologist of the last uh, 60 years. Um, he was the one who did these famous obedience studies. And I think most people know the studies, whether or not they know his name. He brought people in um, and asked them to do an experiment with somebody else. And part of the experiment was when the person made a mistake, you delivered an electric shock. And as the experimenter, you could hear the groans of the person who was being shocked. Um, now, what the subject doesn't know is that the, uh, the other subject is a confederate of the of the experimenter, and he's not really screaming uh, because he's hurt. He's screaming because he wants to see how the shocker behaves. And Milgram's amazing findings, which I think are basically true, is that even though people have misgivings about shocking the uh, subject to the nth degree, uh, most people don't have the courage to step back and say, hey, I'm getting out of here. Um, and so basically, in the wake of the Nazi era, this was to show that many more people will do what the boss says, even if they have misgivings, rather than saying, I'm out of here. So that's Danny Milgram, and we respected him. And um, he didn't have tenure, interestingly enough. Um, tenure means lifetime appointment. But he was definitely going places. And I had no ill will against him. In fact, I probably admired him. But I raised some questions about the experiment. Um, and I have no idea what those questions were. But I'll never forget his response. He laid into me, weighed into me, as if I was the most awful, ingrate, ungrateful, nasty person. And I was totally shocked. I'd never, since Miss Dyer's days, been attacked like that. Um, and what was equally amazing to me, there was another professor in the room, Tom Pettigrew, and there were my 20 or so fellow developmental and social students. Nobody said a word in defense. And I was totally shaken, because I'd never been attacked like this in a class for what I thought was completely invalid reasons. I mean, afterwards, people came up to console me, including Pettigrew. And of course, I said, thank you. But I was thinking, why the hell didn't you speak up when this took place? To this day, Milgram died 50, uh, 30 years ago, and we had a perfectly OK relationship. We never talked about the incident again. But I never will know, to, because he's dead now, whether I really just tripped a nerve or whether he was doing an experiment on me. Because he's an experimenter. Would he see what it would take to break this kid who thinks he knows a lot? And I'll never know. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. Because if you took a face in one of his experiments, even if you were debriefed afterwards, you would still feel pretty bad. And of course, nobody debriefed me. I love that idea that maybe you were you were one of the Stanley Milgram subjects uh, and you didn't know it. Um, that's hilarious. And you know, Cody, you know, he may not have known it himself. Yeah. I think he had psychological issues, and I may have tricked something in him, and he may have gotten angry, and then he may have said, I want to see whether anybody will speak up, because it's an obedience authority, too. In the way everybody in the class remained on his side or remained silent. They were bystanders, right? Not upstanders. One thing I love in the Milgram story, and this is a total aside, is that so he did a decade's worth of the obedience to authority experiments, 
which regardless of, of how callous you are as an individual has to be just very, like take a big psychological toll. And then the set of experiments that he ran after that, so he moved to Paris with his wife, and then he basically asked Parisians to draw what they think their city looks like, which in comparison to the obedience to authority experience is literally the most benign paradigm in the history of psychology. And so I love the juxtaposition between those. Uh, and then what I think it says about the state of mind he was probably in after doing a decade of that crazy stuff. Well, I mean, since we're talking to a lot of students, it's interesting that Stanley Milgram did not get tenure because um, a lifetime appointment is something he certainly deserved at Harvard and Yale, which were the two schools he taught at. Um, he eventually got tenure at the City University of New York, which is a perfectly good school. But, um, you know, I suppose if I cared mightily, I could talk my way into the files at Harvard to find out why he didn't get tenure. Um, whereas Pettigrew did get tenure, even though he was much less of a light. But it may have been, and you know, I can understand this reason, if you don't want to have doctoral advisors who are nuisances <laughs> or, nurture, or, or duplicators, but you want nurturers, Milgram would not have been a good choice. Um, so that would be interesting to know, but um, I, I don't think it's public knowledge why he didn't get tenure. Yeah. You're best known probably for your theory of multiple intelligences, primarily from your 1983 book, Frames of Mind. But uh, before before we get to that, I want to talk to you about the the book you wrote after that, which I think it was the very the very next one. Um, and that was uh, the Mind's New Science: A History of the Cognitive Revolution. And so, just to say a little bit about what it means to me personally, I think this was actually one of the most impactful books I've ever read. It uh, it did at least as much as any other book to sort of structure the way I think about cognitive science and psychology and the study of mind. Because I also, like you, you said of yourself, think about things historically. That's very much the same thing for me. And so, in a sense, I, I feel like I can chart my own intellectual trajectory in degrees of deviation from the blueprint that you laid out in that book. So basically, I took that book as like gospel, like, okay, here's the map of the world. This is what happens. And then as I've learned things in my own time, my own journey, I realized, oh, you know, I don't necessarily agree with, uh, you know, like, you know, whatever, uh, certain things. And then that's, you know, a modulation from the original conception. Anyway, the point is, is that it was a really big book for me uh, when I first read it as an undergraduate and, and even still now. And uh, so I'd like to ask you a little bit about that, starting with, um, you know, when did you first feel compelled to write a history of the cognitive revolution? Okay. Well, um, again, speaking as, as a, a, a scholar, um, I'm, I'm basically a writer. And unlike most people who go into the sciences, I'm more of a book writer than I am an article writer. I've written lots of articles. I've fought with peer review for 60 years. Um, so I know how to do that, but I actually think big. That's not a value judgment. That's I like to take on big things. And uh, I find it easier to do a book than to do an article. That's very unusual for people in the sciences. So I've written a lot of books. And if you looked at them, we would see the name mind in a lot of them. But you could never have figured out what my major interest is because I do art, I do science, I do creativity, I do leadership, I do ethics. So I just take on big topics. Um, and I take them on primarily because I'm interested in them and I can't find out the answer. If there'd been a great book about cognitive science, I would never have decided to, to write one. But in the late 70s and early 80s, 
I began to hear this word cognitive science bandied about a lot. Um, and when I asked people what it was, I didn't get a very good answer. Um, and then if you embark on a project of any size and scope, you need to have some support. And there was a foundation called the Sloan Foundation, which was funding cognitive science. They may even have created the name. I don't know. Um, I don't remember. Um, and so I went to them and I said, I'd like to uh, do a history of the cognitive revolution. Um, uh, would you give me support so I can travel around? And I remember going to England and France and other countries to talk to people who were um, in the member in the in the member categories of cognitive science: psychology, anthropology, um, neurology, neuroscience, uh, linguistics, philosophy, etc. Um, and uh, so I had a, qu a question: What is cognitive science? And I had airplane tickets and a microphone. Uh, and a tape recorder, because that's what we did in those days. So I, and, and of course, access to um, files. I, I had access to files at many places, including at the Sloan Foundation. Um, so I'm sure that in the back of my mind, my experience with social relations and effort to put fields together under one umbrella uh, was what interested me in cognitive science. Also, um, I had become a cognitive developmental psychologist. I was basically studying different aspects of children's minds, broader than just science, arts, and things like that. But I wasn't a uh, social developmental psychologist. I wasn't a community development. I was a cognitive one. So I had a foot in cognitive psychology, but I wanted to see how it related to these, to these other areas. Um, and uh, uh, as with Sockrell, um, I think that the ambition was very laudatory. But what I would say now, you know, 40 years later, is the regressive pull toward the constituent um, disciplines was very strong as well. And so what, what I've heard from people, maybe including from you, is that even though the word cognitive science lives, um, it's largely psychology, sometimes with linguistics, sometimes with AI or other computational things. But um, the, while every, every major school in America was starting a cognitive science department in the 1980s, um, I would suspect that it's much less of a lure now than it was then. But as with social relations, I think that the, um, the vision of studying the human mind from the perspective of these dis different disciplines is the right one. And I don't see how you can study the human mind without knowing something about the brain and neuroscience. I don't know how you can study the human mind without um, knowing something about uh, philosophy, because after all, my mind itself is a philosophical concept, a very controversial one. Obviously, psychology is, is very central. But especially in this era where we're talking so much about weird, you know, people who are white, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon, uh, living in developed countries, uh, male, uh, looking at the mind and other kinds of culture, looking at it anthropo anthropologically is, is of the essence as well. And, you know, back to classical times, which most distinguish about human beings is language. So uh, if you really are interested in the mind in the large, too core, as they say, um, you really would need to take a look at these um, vantage points, these perspectives, even though it's quite understandable that you have to have 
of more solid standing in one field than in another. And so um, I'm attracted to journals like the Behavior and Brain Sciences, which tends to bring together material from different um, constituent sciences interested in the brain and behavior. Um, and I'm more likely to read um, magazines and newspapers and books, which aren't just within one discipline, but which um, are more ambitious. And that takes us to the synthesizing mind, because you can't write uh, a book about anything human and be at all comprehensive unless you're capable and interested in synthesizing materials from, from different disciplines. So even though um, the, the Mind's New Science, the book about uh, the cognitive revolution, um, didn't call itself a synthesizing book, because I don't think I used the term then, that's, that's really what it was. And whatever I work on, that's, that's what I, that's the competitive advantage that I bring to it. And one reason for focusing on the synthesizing mind is because um, it's a mind that we tend to lose sight of in a very discipline specific era. And yet it's probably the mind that's most important nowadays. Uh, in the book, I quote Murray Gelman, Nobel laureate, who said in the 21st century, the synthesizing mind will be the most important mind. And of course, <laughs> that, that was music to my ears, but I've begun to write. I don't know whether I sent you my notion about human science and artificial intelligence since I just posted a, a blog about that. Um, I'll send it. Have I sent it to you or not? No, I haven't. I haven't read that one. It, it's about Palantir, that, which puts itself forth as a, a great AI synthesizer. Uh, and I'll, I'll send you. But anyway, um, I think that there's no question that there would be artificial intelligence enterprises which try to do synthesis. And there are certain kinds of syntheses they may do well or better than human beings. But the question of what to synthesize, how to go about doing it, what to do when you get the result of the synthesis, whether it's any good or not, whether it's useful or not, and what does it lead to next? Um, certainly in my lifetime and probably not in your lifetime, there are not things that AI programs are going to be doing. So synthesizing may be one of the more uniquely human enterprises, endeavors, which is most difficult to download on some kind of an app. Mm. Yeah, so, um, right. So as, you're, as you pretty much summarized, the overarching theme of your intellectual autobiography is, is this concept of a synthesizing mind. There's a few things that I want to unpack in there. Um, so the first thing, and this goes back to sort of what you're describing with the origin of the Cognitive Revolution book, uh, which is, so I have this quote here from, from, your, uh, from your memoir. I believe that the kind of work in which I have long been engaged, situated between journalism on the one hand and experimental laboratory science on the other, is a valid and particularly precious, and possibly particularly precarious form of knowledge. So this was uh, something that resonated with me uh, as a way of thinking about what I want to do and what I also feel like I'm, I'm cut out to do. Um, but, you know, as you're describing it, it is, you know, this, this sort of weird entity that, that combines a little bit of journalism and describing the, what's happening in the world as it is and, and it, you know, experimental laboratory science, which is more about principles and explaining what's going on. So can you just say a little bit more about what that duality means to you and how you pursued it right well i'm very i'm very glad cody you picked out that sentence 
because I think that's one of the three or two or three most important sentences in the book. And I think you're the first person who's actually alighted on it. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, we all know what a journalist is, even though <laughs> in the days of uh, alternate facts, uh, uh, um, it's, it, the, the definition is shaky. And we all know what experimental science is, even though with AI being so important now, you can do a lot of science without being in a laboratory. Um, and I guess my career advice to people is that if you want to be a journalist, you should become a journalist. If you want to become an experimental scientist, you should become an experimental scientist. Full stop. That's not where you have to end up. Um, some journalists end up doing long form journalism. Uh, these end up being books. These end up being 10,000 word articles in the Atlantic Monthly or in the New Yorker, or I, I don't know uh, whether there's an equivalent in, in the UK, but those are certainly um, publications which people read there. Um, and uh, when you're doing that, you're, do, you're, you're a synthesizer in the same way that I am. You just started in a different place. And like me, you have to pick up enough disciplinary skills and enough technical knowledge so you don't look silly when you're writing about COVID and you don't understand anything about uh, cells or about uh, um, viruses and so on. Similarly, and this is more common and will be more familiar to um, the people who listen to this broadcast, there are many people who start out as typical benchtop scientists writing articles, getting into journals, uh, um, getting tenure, um, uh, maybe getting elected to um, honorary societies. But of those, only a small percentage have any interest in writing books or in writing broad syntheses. Um, uh, others, <laughs> I would have been among them, uh, are champing at the bit to be able to do that because that's what they think their competitive advantage is. Um, I don't know if I put this in the book or not, but I talked about the Stephen syndrome because I thought of a bunch of people whom I know, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, Stephen Pinker, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who are great synthesizers. Uh, it's an accident, their names are Stephen. I could have talked about Jill Lepore, historian, or Mary Beard, the historian. Um, uh, and you know, there are synthesizers in, 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 in many different fields. Um, and um, this is an important historical uh, point, which I don't think uh, would be familiar to most people. If you go back 70, 80, 90 years, you could actually make a living as a long form journalist. One of my two heroes as a, as a high school and college student was a man named Edmund Wilson, who never held a job, but who just wrote wonderful long form journalism, many books, many articles for the New Yorker, um, about any topic he was interested in. And no matter who you were, you would learn something from Edmund Wilson. Edmund Wilson could not have survived today without having a job, because you cannot make a living writing long term, long form th things for the New Yorker or for. Um, Vanity Fair. Um, and um, I think the same thing is true in the UK. Um, it was possible in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to make a living. Uh, I'll, I'll throw the name Malcolm Muggeridge out. Uh, you know, somebody who just you know, wrote um, good, good pieces, sometimes books, sometimes articles. But you know, nowadays, unless you are paid to be an editor the way T.S. Eliot was, or paid to be a professor like Trevor Roper was, or uh, um, H.J.P. Taylor, you know, you, uh, you, you do this for extra credit. Uh, you, you, can't, uh, you can't make a living writing serious 
stuff uh, uh, unless you have an, unless you have a day job. Yeah, um, and then there was another thing along a similar lines. You you have this really nice phrase, resisting professionalization, which you sort of um, uh, describe as a rallying call for even though you have been trained in uh, a number of disciplines, particularly developmental and social psychology, you resist being put into the box of it. And I think that that's kind of in line with what you're saying, which is like, okay, have the center of gravity. And, you know, from a pragmatic point of view today, you need to earn that that paycheck and, and have, you know, a, a label and, and a box. There is, there is a role for that. But you resist uh, being sort of crammed all the way into it. And you want to be spilling out, out, out over it. I really like that as well. Yeah, but I want to make a very important distinction here because otherwise I'll get nailed. Um, it's true that I wanted to um, avoid being labeled as just a developmental psychologist or just as an educational psychologist. And um, I avoided going down that strict professional route. And for that reason, <laughs> to make a joke out of it. A lot of more people have heard of me than know what I do, <laughs> uh, which would not be true if, you know, if I was a, a famous doctor that does, that does heart surgery, right? Um, but um, I, I'm a great believer in institutions and in professions. In that sense, I'm very old-fashioned. And I think one of the disasters of the last 50, 60, 70 years, particularly in the United States and UK, is the lack of the loss of a sense of what it means to be professional and a lack of support for institutions. I mean, both of our countries are currently uh, led by people who are anti-professional and anti-institutional. And that's the disaster, because unless you have professionals who are people who are well-trained and will do the right thing, even when it's not in their own self-interest, then institutions would stand for something and will not do certain things because it undermines the institution, you have complete chaos. Um, let's see. Okay, so actually one thing that I'm curious about is that, so in general, I'm very interested in the way we describe our own narratives. And that is an exercise that you've gone through in a very explicit way recently with writing your book and then picking a title for it and saying the defining you know trait of this uh, narrative is synthesizing mind. And there's lots of things going on, of course, but that's uh, the sort of overarching theme of it. When did you start using that term and, and when did you specifically start to apply it to yourself as this kind of describing the way your mind works? That's a great question because if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have given you a totally different answer. Um, and this is something I've never said publicly before, but the statute of limitations has run out. Um, uh, I began to use the term maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I wrote a book called Five Minds for the Future. Um, and I said one kind of mind that was important was the synthesizing mind. And then in 2008, um, I actually wrote a paper for a Vatican conference on synthesizing, but I had forgotten it. So um, the, uh, uh, the decision to write the, the biography with that title, the autobiography, was a more recent decision. But here's the revelation. My wife and I just moved from a standard house to a small apartment, which is what you do when you get to be a certain point in life. And I discovered that um, in 1980 or 81, um, I was nominated to be a MacArthur Prize Fellowship. 
uh, that's an honor you can get in the United States uh, where you get five years of support to do whatever you want, and it's a big deal. And, and everyone um, calls you a genius in quotes for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, not guilty, but correct. Um, but it turns out I had written a letter to the man who I discovered was a nominator in which I'd used the word synthesizing. So we, we were way back when I was in my 30s, I already at some level was comfortable describing myself that way, but it didn't really become blatant until decades later. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you do have a little passage where you describe your the variables that you would have in your model of a synthesizing mind if you were to sit down to ha and write the academic article on it. Um, but one thing that stands out to me specifically for your particular mind, and you sort of touch on many instances of this in the book, is your lifelong consistency in refusing to follow the rules. So from your early musical interest as a kid to your career, um, you, you simply won't do things the way they're conventionally done. And you don't say as much directly as in, you know, it's not part of the model. But it strikes me that this is actually part and parcel of, of having a synthesizing mind in an important way. You know, if you're, if you're synthesizing, that means that uh, you are in some way deviating from convention, from the received way of organizing knowledge, right? And so in order to follow where the synthesis takes you, you, you have to be pretty comfortable with going down a non-traditional path. So does that resonate with your understanding of, of synthesis and then of, of your own you know, sort of path there? That's a great question. And when people say that, they're sometimes just being polite. But in this case, it's sort of opened up a whole bunch of things for me. Because in one sense, I'm a terrific rule follower. Um, I was a great driller in, as a kid. Um, and then I was a you know, serious pianist. And I still play the piano every day. And I do it my way, but certainly you can't be a good pianist of classical music, unless you're following a lot of rules, beginning with pay attention to the score. And people who work with me, and I'm lucky and I have wonderful people <clears throat> who work with me over decades, uh, and really several decades, um, you know, I'm kind of stickler to doing things the right way and holding people accountable when they're not. So I'm not somebody who defies <clears throat> rules for the sake <clears throat> of, of defying them. But where you're right is, um, if you want to do something which hasn't been done before <clears throat> and there isn't a, it isn't a prescribed way of doing it, you're sort of thrown back on uh, inventing uh, a, 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 an approach that works for you. And one of the things I point out in the book, and I don't know how uh, common this is, um, I became an early reader and I used to read encyclopedias. And when you read as an encyclopedia as a kid, you don't have no idea what history is or what psychology is or what entomology is. You're just reading about stuff. Um, and later, the, the disciplines or the professions come in and they tell you what you can do and what you shouldn't do. But in the meantime, you've got all that muck there. And it's good muck. It's not bad muck, but it's muck. Um, and uh, if you try to deal with that muck um, by any established rules, you'd have to cut most of it out, right? Uh, you'd have to say, well, I'm not going to pay attention to 95% of stuff because that's not what a lawyer does or it's not what a developmental psychologist does. Um, and so while I'm a stickler for rules in areas where I think they're important, maybe even constitutive, in where I'm most interested, um, I really don't want to have to follow rules except those that I come up with, which seem to make sense. Um, and 
I think I'm good at not um, telling students what to do. I think I'm more of the nurturer than I am the, uh, um, the prescriber. In fact, I have wonderful students who have gone on to do wonderful things, but none of them is at all like me. They're not clones in any sense. Um, and I think that's good for them, and it's, it's, it's fine for me. So I guess the way I would edit what you said is um, follow the rules when it doesn't make any sense, or I mean, when it doesn't make any difference, or when you believe in the process, like you should play what the, what the composer wrote. Uh, um, but when you're trying to do something new and you've got lots of stuff around, if there aren't rules to follow, just you know, create the process that works for you. And one reason for ending the book the way I did is because I think we've been pretty unconscious of synthesizing, particularly within psychology, because in psychology, you learn about things by creating tests or experiments. You can't create an experiment to see whether somebody can synthesize. I mean, Darwin collected data for 30 years before writing his book. Uh, and you can't uh, create a test for synthesizing unless it's very trivial, like what are, the th what are the three things these things have in common? That's the sort of thing you'd have in an IQ test. And so it's not something for which you can get journal reviews or get tenure, um, which is why I see people say, write your books after you get tenure. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think we could do a much better job starting with grade school, with young kids all the way through college, and giving people scaffolding to help them synthesize. First of all, saying, you know, this particular uh, assignment is a synthesizing one. Um, there's a lot written on it already, or a lot done on it already. Don't be, don't duplicate it. Figure out where the where are the unfinished business, um, what looks promising, and then this is where the book goes into some detail. Figure out a way to monitor your own progress. Create grids and equations and formulas and metaphors and mental models and mind mind maps and so on. <clears throat> converse with yourself, then converse with other people who know something about it. Get their feedback. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think there is. I think teaching synthesis is an educational field waiting to be born, and nobody ever taught me anything. But I was lucky to uh, be attracted to synthesizers, both ones I didn't know, like Edmund Wilson and Richard Hofstadter. Uh, though I have a, a letter from Edmund Wilson in my book, uh, Hofstadter had died already, um, and teachers like Roger Brown or Jerry Brew. Bruner, and I mentioned Eric Erickson, who were book writers and who synthesized. And I learned from their model as well from their reactions to what I wrote. Uh, um, but it was informal, and I think no reason why we can't do a better job of helping people synthesize, particularly if in this period of, of history, it's such an important mind. Well, I think that was a great way to end the book. And it's probably also an equally good way to uh, sort of sum up the conversation since it touches on a lot of the stuff that we uh, covered throughout all this. Yeah, let me let me just um, mention two things because I wrote them down. Perfect. Uh, um, I mentioned music in passing, but uh, next to my family, uh, there's nothing as important to me as music. Um, I listen to music all the time. My wife can't stand that, but, uh, so we, sh we shut the radio off when we go to sleep. Um, I play the piano every day. Who are your favorite um, composers? Pardon me? Who are your favorite composers? Well, um, Mahler is a favorite composer, but not his piano music. Mm. 
Um, but the, the, the three composers who I would take with me in a desert island are Mozart, Chopin, and Debussy. Mm. Uh, and you know there are there are runners up, but uh, the, those are those are the three because of their of their of their piano music. And I was raised Jewish, but Judaism was never important to my family, and it hasn't been important to me or to my children or grandchildren. Um, but I do think that uh, in the world we need some kind of a spiritual or religion um, envelope. Uh, I'm just writing something about that. I'll send it to you, though it's not for quotation because it's just a, a working paper. Um, and I think my work and the music um, fulfills that role for me, but it doesn't for most people. And I think one of the reasons that the world is such a bad shape is that, you know, any intuitive sense of God doesn't make sense anymore. But but people need to feel part of something bigger than themselves. Um, and so one working title for this article is Religion Without God. I, I, uh, I think I'm going to call it Religion Without Our Time. Uh, you can't just sideline God and think everything will be okay. But what keeps people like you and me uh, probably energized isn't going to be enough for most people. And so we need to we need to figure out things. And I think it has to do with what it means to be a human. Uh, mm. But you can read about it if you want, uh, but you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested to hear what you what you have to say on that. Uh, that's something that I certainly spent a lot of time thinking about myself. Uh, and you, you're right. It's, it's We don't have the right terminology for it, but it's this question of how do I stay connected as a human to the world at large? And um, certainly f for people who are drawn to scholarly pursuits, there's a, an intellectual aspect to that. I think music definitely offers a way to that. Um, I think poetry is also a, an avenue through which that can be experienced. And I think that what I'm finding as I, you know, I'm sort of growing into adult life is that adult life isn't built for those, those sort of pursuits. You have to, there's, there's no, they're not going to be given to you in any way or asked of you in the same way that like a professional career development is asked of you and a role that you, you have to, you know, kind of take some sort of stance on. And so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in my own, you know, sort of personal experiences recently. How do I build those connections and how do I build a life that has a thick network of those human connections to this larger entity, the world, uh, as it not just pertains to me, but pertains to a much larger vision. And uh, I'd be very interested to hear what you think the comp important components of that are. Yeah, well, that's, um, I mentioned I'm working in college. I mean, that's really what a liberal arts education at its best is. And We've just finished a big book on that topic. So maybe in two years, you can talk to my co-author, Wendy Fishman, and me. Um, but I, I think you've also maybe inadvertently put your finger on the problems in the United States and Britain. I think the people who find Trump and Johnson or Brexit attractive are people who, without knowing it, resent those of us who find meaning in something they don't understand. They know that people at Oxbridge are uh, are smug. That's probably true. But they also have a sense that uh, there's some meaning in their life 
which it's very difficult for the other people to get. Um, and so they, it comes out as resentment. Uh, and Steve Bannon, you know, is brilliant at fanning, at fanning that. Um, my colleague, Bill Damon, you may know his name. He worked on The Good Project with me, um, really focuses on this in his work and on, on the sense of purpose. Um, and he's just written a memoir too, I'm halfway through it, uh, uh, about finding purpose in your life. And again, it's, 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 it's on the edge of religion. He's more religious than I am, but it's, I mean, it's supported by Templeton. I think that says it in a sentence, right. uh, which I, it's not something that happens to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, can't, we can't assume that uh, you know, what Watson and Crick did is going to be satisfying or understandable to most people. You know, one thing I'll add to what you're saying is that I'm sure what you're describing with certain factions in society, I'm sure that there is uh, definitely parts of that which are true. Which are true. And one thing I'll add to it is that I don't think that there's any aspect of society which is immune from having to deal with this problem of how to maintain and connect with these deeper human experiences. Certainly, I don't think academics are immune to it. I know plenty of academics who seem like they could probably use a much larger dose of connection to these deeper human uh, meanings and themes and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, so I, I do think it is something that everyone, no matter what your disposition or uh, you know, sort of role in society and life is, you have to find you have to be it requires constant vigilance to to maintain those connections to these these broader these broader things that we're talking about agreed though i'm very lucky because it, it was never a problem for me yeah I, um, I think that there's something to be said of uh, i guess i think of it recently as being an enthusiast right you like you are enthused by things and you are, you know, maybe it's, it's sort of related to openness to experience or something like that, but having a, a very deep emotional connection to it. There's a certain joy in that, you know, being enthused by new experiences and new things and finding stuff out and all that sort of stuff. And I do think that is dispositional. I think some people have it. And I think it's a damn blessing to, to have it. Um, uh, it so, yeah, I, I, I think that... That 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 would be something that I would ascribe to a little bit more, you know, a, a person's disposition. Well said. I mean, Damon and his wife Ann Colby, and I'll send you their names. Asked me a year or two ago, what was your sense of purpose, Howard? It was a gen serious question, and I said, I never thought about it, but I've always been curious, and that's uh, what you're saying. Anyway, we should both go. Yes. But I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. I think you've got. Lots of interesting options ahead. Thank you so much for taking the time, Howard. This is a real pleasure. Very good. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Howard Gardner. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to Cognitive Revolution or rate it on iTunes. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or through my email newsletter at codycommerce.com slash newsletter. As always, thank you for listening, and I will be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Thank you.